Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. And welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Kevin Canary. Today on the call, we have Jason, Shreya, and Megana on the call with us. And we are lucky enough today to interview Dr. Rebecca Sippel. She's an associate pro- uh, she's an associate professor and vice chair of academic affairs and professional development. And she's the chief of endocrine surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, she completed her medical degree at Washington University uh, School of Medicine in St. Louis and her general surgery residency at the University of Wisconsin and completed her fellowship in endocrine surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, You may have heard Dr. Sippel before on the podcast. She was a guest at the Academic Surgical Congress, and we were excited to have her on for a full interview today. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Sippel, for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. And we just like always like to start off uh, wanting to know kind of how did you get into surgery, and then how did you end up deciding uh, to, to pursue a career in endocrine surgery? You know, when I started medical school, I actually was really fascinated by endocrine physiology. I thought I was going to be an endocrinologist. Um, And then when I started my third year rotations, I actually fell in love with my surgery rotation and uh, then had to sort of reconsider my options and what I was going to do. Uh, And then I came to the realization that everything that was really cool about uh, endocrinology was actually a surgical problem. And so when I chose to go into general surgery, I knew I was going to go into endocrine surgery. So that's probably a little bit of a rare way to get into this, but it was really my, you know, desire to take care of patients with endocrine diseases that led me into the field of endocrine surgery. So I think our listeners should definitely um, take a listen to our previous um, interview with you at the Academic Surgical Congress, where you talk a little bit more about academia and being a a surgeon scientist and encouraging academic surgeons. But the one question I had for you was, was it the thyroid cancer research that interested you in endocrine or um, maybe not thyroid cancer, but just the endocrine disorders? Was that what interested you in research or was it the flip side where um, it was the research that interested you in the clinical um, setting? Yeah, no, I think I was just really fascinated with the clinical aspects of the diseases. I just think it's a fascinating, you know, for example, parathyroid disease, how someone could have all of these symptoms and all these medical problems, and there's just one unifying diagnosis, and it's just little gland that's overproducing a hormone that can just have these life-changing impacts on patients. So I just think it's really fascinating how hormones can produce you know, effects throughout the body. Um, And so I think that that was really what fascinated me about the field. I think, you know, my desire to do research really comes to my desire to want to take the best care of patients possible. You know, when you dedicate your career to taking care of one type of disease process, you want to do it the best you can. And I think anytime somebody asks me a question that I don't know the answer, I think it's my obligation as an academic surgeon to be able to figure out that answer. I just think that that's what drives me to, you know, to do the research that I do is that if there are unanswered questions or things that we are struggling with as clinicians or things that patients are struggling with, then I think that that's our obligation to try to find those answers. So it's really my passion to delivering high quality clinical care that really drives me to do the research that I do. So Dr. Sipple, for me, endocrine surgery is... I find it really cool because I think that we 
um, most of all going to surgery, you know, because the fact that there is like that immediate gratification. And I think endocrine surgery of all general surgeries, one of those where you, you know, you get the intra uh, biochemical uh, results back. And, you know, it's like, a ver that's as far as immediate of a response you can ever get. And I wanted to open it up to you. What is the coolest or most fascinating endocrine pathology that you've taken care of and, uh, and or surgery that you've done? And if you can talk about it. I would say that the most gratifying aspect of my career is to see patients at a post-op visit. There are very few surgical procedures that you can do that by the time of a post-op visit, the patient has already had profound changes, you know, changes in their quality of life and their overall ability to function. Um, some of my parathyroid patients have been the most grateful patients I have ever encountered. And it just, you know, you know, makes you realize why you do what you do, that you can have such a profound impact in helping patients who have really been struggling for years with symptoms that nobody really understood what the cause was. Um, so I would say that those are definitely the patients that are the most memorable. Um, you know, I remember I had a patient, um, she was 95, and nobody was willing to operate on her for parathyroid disease. And her family contacted me and they begged me. They said she was in a nursing home and she had terrible, you know, dementia and memory problems and confusion. And they just thought if there's any chance that this would get better. Um, and so she came down and she was actually pretty healthy. And I thought she would get through the operation just fine. And so we talked about it. And we did the operation. And I remember the thank you note I got from her husband. And it was the sweetest thing I ever got. Um, he just wrote that, you know, thank you for giving me my wife back. We've been married for 62 years. And he's like, even if she only lives another three months, the fact that you were able to give me back my wife for three months means everything to me. And he's just thank you for not, you know, writing her off because of her age and refusing her to give this opportunity because he's like the surgery was life changing for her. Um, and so I think it's those types of things that you see and you just sort of really, you know, have a better understanding of why we treat this disease and, and really what the impact it can have on both patients and their families. That's awesome. That's a great story. So, you know, it leads very nicely into uh, our dissection of the day. And this is a, a part of the podcast where we talk specifically about a certain disease process. Um, and we're very excited to have you with us. Uh, you know, you're one of the world experts on parathyroid disease. So we'd really like to focus on, on parathyroid disease. We have a lot of listeners of various levels, um, all the way from, you know, medical students to laymen, all the way up to, you know, chairs of departments. So if we could just start at the basics, let's just start with the basics of hyperparathyroidism. Um, it's, a, it's a large question, but if you could unpack it for us a little bit, what's your initial approach to these patients when they get sent into your uh, clinic? How do you distinguish primary, secondary, ter tertiary, and how do you determine who is going to benefit from a surgery? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's really important anytime you're evaluating these patients that you sort of break it up into pieces. And I would say the first question I always have when I'm meeting with a patient is, do they have the diagnosis? And I think the key is in parathyroid disease is it is a biochemical diagnosis. It is entirely based on laboratory findings. 
And so I think too often people start going down the route of imaging and other adjuncts, but at the end of the day, that doesn't make a diagnosis. The diagnosis is biochemical and it's based on labs. And then once you've solidified the diagnosis, then you have to talk about, would they benefit from treatment? You know, what are the pros and cons of surgery? What are the potential advantages of doing it? And then if you're confident that they have it and that they would benefit, then you start talking about surgical planning. And I think it's at that stage and only at that stage that we even start talking about what imaging we're going to get and what approach we're going to use. And so I think too often people blur those three steps and that's where problems happen. So I think the key is, is that we always have to be confident of a diagnosis before we move on to step two and step three. So I think when you're making a diagnosis, the key is, is that it's based on labs. And so what you're looking for is a high calcium and an elevated parathyroid hormone level. That's a clear cut, elevated calcium, elevated PTH. If you have high calcium for reasons that are not related to the parathyroid, the parathyroid hormone level is going to be lower suppressed. So if it is elevated, it is abnormal. I think the caveat to that is that there are also these more subtle forms. You always have to think about it is if somebody's hypercalcemic, what should their parathyroid hormone level be if it's working appropriately? And it should be suppressed. It should be nearly undetectable or definitely probably less than 20. And if it is in the normal range or the high normal range, that's not normal. So I think anytime you look at those two labs together, you want to see, does this make sense? And is the parathyroid suppressing appropriately or responding to the degree of hypercalcemia? And then once you do that, there's a couple other tests that you want to do. I think especially if the calcium is high normal and the parathyroid is the only thing that's elevated, then you would want to make sure you rule out secondary causes. And the most common one is going to be vitamin D deficiency. So I think for all of these patients, you would want to get a vitamin D level. Um, I think the confusing thing for people is that people don't understand that vitamin D deficiency is actually part of the diagnosis of hyperparathyroidism. If somebody has primary hyperparathyroidism, by definition, almost all of them will be vitamin D deficient because PTH actually activates vitamin D. It activates it from 25 to 125 hydroxyvitamin D. And the 125 hydroxyvitamin D doesn't have as long of a half-life. So what happens is when you have a high PTH level, you burn through your vitamin D stores and you deplete your vitamin D levels. So when you check their vitamin Ds, they're all going to be deficient. So if somebody's hypercalcemic and they're vitamin D deficient, you don't have to worry that this is vitamin D deficiency. It's just a part of the disease process. Um, so the only time you would worry that if the vitamin D deficiency is the primary problem is as if their calcium is low. So primary vitamin D deficiency, part of what drives it is, is that it inhibits calcium absorption. So those patients tend to have low serum calciums. So in that case, they're not going to have hypercalcemia. They're going to have a low or low normal calcium and an elevated PTH. In that case, you would worry that this really is just a vitamin D deficiency issue. And then what you want to do is treat the vitamin D deficiency. And if you treat it, what will happen is the PTH will come down and the calcium will normalize or stay normal. If that happens, then you know that this was just vitamin D deficiency. I think on the caveat, when somebody's got a calcium of 12 and a pH of 200 and they're vitamin D deficient, this is not vitamin D deficiency. You know, that's just part of the disease. Now you can certainly try to supplement it preoperatively, 
But one of the challenges of that is that it's going to be very difficult to replete it. And it's possible you can actually drive the calcium even higher and make the patient more symptomatic. So I think it's not inappropriate to supplement it pre-op, but I would say that that's a case where I would never try to correct the vitamin D deficiency before I took them to surgery. So when we're talking about um, primary hyperparathyroidism, um, there's the common test question about what are the indications for parathyroidectomy in the asymptomatic patient. Can you talk about that and kind of what you find most important out of the five commonly um, described um, symptoms or signs? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting. There's these consensus guidelines saying what the indications are, but I would say that for for most patients, even outside of those indications, they probably would benefit from surgery. I think the clear indications are young age. So if someone is young, this disease never goes away spontaneously. And so if they are under the age of 50, it makes sense to get this fixed because they're going to live a, have a long time to develop the consequences of the disease. There are numeric cutoffs, you know, if the calcium is greater than one milligram per deciliter above the upper limits of normal. I would say that the evidence supporting that that is a clear indication isn't as strong, but I would say that it just, it's a concern that the higher the calcium is, the higher the risk is of developing hypercalcemic crisis. And so that's why those patients would be recommended to have surgery. If people have bone disease, uh, they're obviously going to benefit from surgery. This is the only surgically uh, correctable cause of osteoporosis. And so for somebody with osteoporosis, it absolutely makes sense to try to get this disease addressed so that they can restore their bone density and prevent ongoing bone loss. You know, the guidelines would say to wait till they get to osteoporosis, but, but I would say that if they have osteopenia or they have worsening bone density, why would you wait until it gets really bad before you intervene? I think as long as they show evidence of disease or especially worsening of their disease, it absolutely makes sense to, to address it sooner than later so that they can prevent some of the ongoing loss. And then obviously, if they have uh, renal manifestations, you know, if they have kidney stones, this is one of the only correctable cause of kidney stones. So again, let's not wait for them to have three or four episodes of kidney stones before we think about it. Let's try to intervene to prevent the complications related to their ongoing kidney stones. In addition to kidney stones, it can actually alter, lead to nephrocalcinosis and calcification of the kidney, which can damage kidney function. So Worst case scenario, patients can have diminished uh, GFR and, you know, worst case scenario can go on to renal failure. And so obviously, if they have any signs of renal disease, uh, it would make sense to get this fixed. I think beyond that, you know, and, and this has been one of the things nationally has been hard to struggle with is this issue about the symptoms. The symptoms of hyperparathyroidism are, are, are numerous. And basically every patient that you talk to has some symptoms attributable to this. Most of them have pretty profound fatigue. They can have muscle aches and pains, bone pains. They can have urinary symptoms. They can have memory, cognitive problems. And I would say that if patients are really suffering from what I think are very classic symptoms of hyperparathyroidism, and there is not any other good reason why they would have those conditions, I think those patients also would absolutely benefit from surgery for hyperparathyroidism. Uh, so Dr. Sipple, a question that's asked a lot in rounds is uh, secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism. I was wondering if you could, I know that's a, a lecture all in itself, but um, kind of break down uh, what those are and uh, how we're managing those now. 
Yeah, so I would say with secondary hyperparathyroidism, what that just means is that something's driving the problem with the parathyroids, it's not the parathyroids. So the most common driver is going to be hypocalcemia, and that hypocalcemia might be related to poor absorption, like a patient with a gastric bypass. It might be related to renal failure, where their kidneys are not reabsorbing calcium effectively, or it can be related to vitamin D deficiency, where they're not activating vitamin D appropriately and not absorbing calcium. So I would say in all those, you really want to try to get at the underlying cause. Why are they not absorbing calcium? What can we do to enhance their absorption of both calcium and vitamin D? And that's going to be the best treatment for those. I would say in patients with renal failure, you know, now there are medical therapies, sinicalcid can be used and that can help to bring down the calcium. Um, I would say that what's happening is, is that we are intervening much later in secondary hyperparathyroidism. And, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily a benefit to the patients, because I think the patients that we get are pretty late in their disease course um, for intervention, and often have some fairly significant side effects related to it. I would say that um, around the world, we're starting to see a shift of maybe being a little bit more aggressive and operating a little bit sooner on secondary hyperparathyroidism than we have over the past few years. I think tertiary hyperparathyroidism is one of those things that everybody's taught that that happens post kidney transplant, that you had secondary and then you had a kidney transplant and now by definition you would have tertiary. And I would say that that's most patients who have tertiary hyperparathyroidism. But I would say that some people actually develop tertiary hyperparathyroidism prior to transplant. Really tertiary hyperparathyroidism is when somebody has had long-standing secondary hyperparathyroidism and they develop autonomy. So once somebody who has secondary hyperparathyroidism starts to develop problems with hypercalcemia, they now have tertiary hyperparathyroidism. And that does not have to necessarily happen post-transplant. That can happen pre-transplant. And I would say once they start to develop autonomy, then it really is like a primary hyperparathyroidism mixed with a secondary hyperparathyroidism. Once they did develop autonomy, they need surgical treatment. That is never gonna resolve, it's never gonna regress. And so I think whether they develop that pre-transplant or post-transplant, those are the patients that would definitely need surgery. For those patients who don't have clear autonomy, most people post-transplant, if they have just bad secondary, are gonna regress. And typically we think that it's gonna regress within six months to a year. And usually by that time, if they have not regressed, we would consider doing surgical treatment of them. You know, I'd say that they have poorly controlled secondary hyperparathyroidism that doesn't regress, it definitely has a negative impact on their graft function. So I think there has been a little bit of a shift lately that we are going to intervene on those patients a little bit sooner post-transplant, especially if they start developing problems with hypercalcemia. Parathyroid cancer is a very testable topic on our app sites. Uh, would you mind, Dr. Sippel, like just giving us a brief uh, overview in our AppSite portals for uh, parathyroid cancer? Yeah, so I would say parathyroid cancer is a rare entity. I would say classically, and test questions, this is the calcium of 13 or 14 with a palpable neck mass, um, is a classic presentation for uh, parathyroid cancer. These tend to be very large, and because of the cancer, they become fibrotic and inflamed and, and much firmer. A typical parathyroid is really soft and mobile, so anytime you can palpate a mass, you have to worry about potential parathyroid carcinoma. 
I would say that is a diagnosis that you can have a suspicion on preoperatively in somebody who comes in with hypercalcemic crisis or has a markedly elevated calcium or on ultrasound imaging, the gland just looks very atypical. But most of the time, the diagnosis is made intraoperatively. So you go in doing what you think is a planned parathyroidectomy. And you find the parathyroid and it's firm and it's fibrotic and it's stuck in position and it doesn't feel like a typical benign parathyroid. And I would say that if there's any suspicion intraoperatively, we just have to default to doing it like we would, you know, a cancer operation. And typically what you want to do is do an on-block resection of both the parathyroid and the adjacent thyroid lobe and the surrounding tissues. So we don't typically do a central neck dissection because lymph node involvement is not common in parathyroid cancer. The only rationale to do a partial lymph node or a partial central neck dissection is really just to take the fatty tissues that are surrounding the gland in case there's any invasion into the surrounding tissues. And then once you would remove that lobe and the parathyroid together, you send it to the pathologist. I would say very rarely is a frozen section gonna be helpful to confirm the diagnosis. And then the pathologist has to look at it. And most pathologists, the only way they're willing to call it a parathyroid carcinoma is if they see frank invasion, either vascular invasion or invasion into the surrounding thyroid tissue. And I would say most of the time they're not going to see that. So what they will do is call it an atypical adenoma. And so I would say there's probably a spectrum from a very benign parathyroid to a full-blown parathyroid cancer. And in between is that atypical adenoma. So I think atypical adenomas, some of them clinically might look like a cancer, um, but some of them have just not quite progressed to, to frank invasion of the surrounding tissues. So I would say intraoperatively, though, you're going to treat both of those the same and just do that on-block resection at the first operation. The other thing that's really key during surgery is to make sure that you don't disrupt the capsule and that you do not spill any cells. Because these cells already have um, some malignant behavior, if you spill cells, they will implant into all the surrounding tissues. And you can end up with a condition called parathyroidomatosis, where there are basically small implants of parathyroid tissue throughout the central neck or wherever you resected it. So I think, think the key is to do a complete resection and to not disrupt the capsule. So what are the outcomes for these patients? Because it's so rare that many of us don't get to actually, you know, take care of patients who have parathyroid cancer. I would say that if you can recognize it intraoperatively and do the right operation the first time, many of these patients do incredibly well. Um, because if you don't spill any cells and you don't leave a positive margin, you know, the risk of recurrence for these patients is actually quite low. Where we get into trouble is when somebody didn't recognize it or they spilled some cells and then they end up with problems with recurrence. Um, there is a portion of these patients who end up with distant metastatic disease or recurrent lymph node disease, but I would say that my experience has been is that that is a small percentage of patients, that most of the patients I've seen in my practice are at that atypical adenoma or that very early transition to cancer and end up doing very well long-term. Great. So you kind of started, you know, you talked about the intraoperative um, th key considerations for cancer, but can you walk us through um, general like parathyroidectomy, um, some of the important details for us to remember, um, and then 
also to talk about kind of the intraoperative nerve monitoring, PTH monitoring, uh, where to look for that missing gland, and then, you know, re-implanting uh, partial gland. Yeah, sure. I would say that, you know, part of operative planning is to sort of think about what operative approach is going to be best for that given patient. And I think part of that is based on the biochemical profile and sort of your history preoperatively. You know, if somebody has a positive family history, they have mild disease, and your imaging tests are negative, you know that they're incredibly high risk for multi-gland disease, which affects between 10 to 15% of patients. So that's a patient who probably right up front is just going to need a foregland exploration. Alternatively, they have very clear-cut parathyroid disease and imaging is classic for an adenoma. That's going to be a patient who's probably a reasonable candidate to doing a minimally invasive approach. So I think part of this is based on what your imaging shows, but also what your, you know, pre- pre-index probability of suspicion of multi-gland disease. There are certain patients you just know are going to be high risk and you're probably, regardless of imaging, going to want to do a foregland exploration. So I think part of it is you have to have that plan going in, but no matter what your plan is going in, you may change interoperatively. So I would say that if I'm doing a straightforward, well-localized parathyroid and I'm planning a minimally invasive approach, what I typically do is I take them back to surgery and I do an ultrasound on the table. I localize where the parathyroid is. I plan my incision to be in closest proximity to that. And I do a very focused surgery where I go after that gland. And once I find the gland, I look at it and I say, does this look like an adenoma? And you can tell it's an adenoma because you'll see a compressed rim of normal and then you see the growth attached to it. So if it looks like a classic adenoma and it matched what my preoperative imaging is, then that's a perfect case for a minimally invasive approach. I'll take out that gland and then I send parathyroid hormone levels. And our approach is to attain a parathyroid hormone level at baseline and then again at 5, 10 and 15 minutes after resection. At that case, we would then close and we'd wait for those results. And what I'm looking for with those results is, you know, at least a 50% drop. But more importantly, the reason I get the 5, 10, and 15 is I'm looking at the continued trend of those parathyroid hormone levels over time. So let's say my baseline was 150 and it fell to 75. The next one I would expect to be about 35. You know, it should continue to come down at that same rate of decline. If it went from 150 to 75 and then 65, that would not reassure me. Why did it stop going down? Why is it not continuing to decline in the same rate of fall? So I would say that if the slope of the curve changes or the levels aren't coming down as I would expect, that's a trigger for me to say maybe they have multi-gland disease and to go back in. Um, but if the parathyroid hormone level drops nicely, I look for at least a 50% drop. I ideally want it to be in the normal range. And I want to have those levels continuing to fall at the rate that I would expect to make sure that they don't have a missing, you know, another gland. Um, I would say that if the blood levels don't drop or there's any question or that first gland I see just doesn't look like a classic adenoma, it just looks bigger than I would expect, then I'm going to just say we're going to do a bilateral exploration. And when we do that, you just have to commit to finding all four glands. I would say what you don't want to do is create scar tissue anywhere in the neck without clearly identifying all four glands. So at that point, I would go and I would identify the other gland on that si same side. And then once I found that, even if I thought it was abnormal, I wouldn't resect it. I would go to the other side and identify all four glands. 
I would say one of the things I always teach my residents and fellows is that once you've resected one parathyroid gland and you're contemplating that you may need to resect more, stop. Don't ever remove the second gland until you've identified all four. Because where you get into trouble and where you get burned is you get too aggressive resecting too early. And then all of a sudden, the third gland you can't find or the fourth gland you can't find. And the third gland turns out to be bigger than the first two. And now you have no viable remnant to leave behind. So I think the key is, is once you realize you might have to take out more than one gland, it's just commit to finding all four. And then once you found all four, then what you want to decide is which is these four glands is the most normal. Um, my preference is to leave a lower gland as a rem remnant because it's a more superficial location. It's further away from the nerve, uh, but sometimes an upper remnant is the best one. And then once you decide which one is gonna be the remnant, you either decide you're gonna leave the entire gland because it's just slightly bigger than normal, or you're gonna cut it in half, and then you would remove the other glands. So I would say that the key with when it's multi-gland disease is to just make sure that you've identified all four glands before you get too aggressive in resecting anything. Um, I would say once I've found all four glands, I will typically send parathyroid hormone levels, but I often don't wait for the results because if I'm really confident that I found all four glands, I don't think that those results are necessarily going to change what I do for that patient. Um, because if you found all four glands and the parathyroid level didn't drop, then it means that the patient may have an ectopic fifth gland. And at that point, you don't really know if it's right, left, high, low. You don't have any localization to guide that dissection. So I just worry that it ends up being a pretty extensive operation trying to figure out where that fifth gland could be. And I think that that's a reasonable option to just pause and say, you know what, maybe we should go back and get some imaging to just reassess before we get too aggressive with this initial exploration. Uh, speaking about these multiple gland explorations, is there any role for cryopreservation? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, typically when we remove um, more than one gland, um, we used to always cryopreserve tissue. I would say that it gets challenging to, to develop a cryopreservation lab because the preservation of it and the storage of it um, is kind of complicated because it's human tissue and it's not reimbursed by insurance. So it's difficult to get institutions to support that facility to have it available for patients. I think the challenge we've also found is that when we had defrosted cryopreserved specimens, we found that they almost never worked. Um, really, you probably have a window of maybe a couple months where you could potentially defrost that tissue and it would actually still be viable. But definitely beyond six months, it loses all viability and it's never been successful to do an autotransplant. So what we've done with our practice now is if I remove more than one parathyroid, I actually cut a piece of the gland off and I put it in some saline and I keep it in the refrigerator or on ice. And then what I do is once the patient's in the recovery room, about an hour after surgery, I check a parathyroid hormone level. And if that level is detectable and it's double digits, I feel very confident that they're not gonna be hypoparathyroid and then I just dispose of the tissue. But if their parathyroid level for some reason at that stage is very low or undetectable, then I would have a conversation with the patient about doing an auto transplant immediately uh, while the tissue is still fresh before it's ever been frozen because I would say the best chance of that autotransplant working is when the tissue is still fresh versus trying to cryopreserve it and then defrost it and put it in at a later date. Those are some really um, awesome pearls of wisdom. Thank you. Um, I, you mentioned preoperative imaging. Um, 
in your clinical practice, do you uh, do a lot of um, in outpatient ultrasounds yourself? Do you rely on your uh, technicians or um, is this something that you kind of do it yourself and teach your residents? Like should general surgery residents be very well versed in doing neck ultrasounds? What's your take on it? Yeah, I would say that neck ultrasound is is an integral part of my practice. And I think as an endocrine surgeon, just learning neck ultrasound and being incredibly proficient at it is really important. I would say that, you know, radiologists, if they really had a specific interest and really were dedicated to it, certainly could get good at doing parathyroid ultrasounds. But I would say the vast majority of radiologists don't have the experience or the understanding of parathyroid anatomy to be good at it. And so I would say that if you really want to make that in a, a big part of your practice, learning it uh, yourself is probably going to be the best solution. So everyone in my group does our own ultrasounds. And I think part of the challenges, and you know, it's no offense to the radiologist, but as a surgeon, you ultrasound the patient and then you operate on them immediately. So you immediately get that anatomic feedback to understand what you just saw in the ultrasound. So to me, when I ultrasound a patient in the OR, I'm really creating a 3D mental map of exactly what I'm going to find during surgery. When I look at that ultrasound, I'm not seeing a 2D image. I'm seeing the neck anatomy and I know exactly where I'm going to find that gland intraoperatively. So I think you get that feedback, which just makes you really good at finding parathyroids. I think the other thing is, as a surgeon, we understand the embryology of parathyroid glands. We understand where they should be and where they can be and all the places we found them in the past. And so when I'm doing a neck ultrasound for parathyroids, I'm thinking about the path of descent of a lower gland or an upper gland or where I would look for them. And, and some of those images are not ones that they would typically capture in a, a standard neck ultrasound. Because if you order a neck ultrasound by a radiologist, it's usually a tech who does it. And they don't, they just do a standard exam. Exam. They're not necessarily doing an exam looking in all the spots where a parathyroid gland could potentially hide. That's fantastic. Yes, I also uh, visualize the embry embryologic movements of glands when I'm uh, looking also, so I'm glad I'm not the only one. Um, the next question I had for you is postoperative management. Um, do you routinely put these patients on calcium uh, or how do you follow that up and, and make sure um, you know they don't become hypocalcemic? Yeah, so I would say that my recommendation is, is that everybody go on a minimum of 1,200 a day of calcium, which is the daily recommended allowance. I think that we know that most patients have had some bone disease or bone loss, and you want their bones to get the maximal recovery. And what you don't want to do is to, to inhibit bone recovery because they don't have the building blocks they need to restore their bone density. So I think having a minimum of 1,200 a day of calcium plus adequate vitamin D stores are important so that patients can get the maximal benefits of surgery. I would say I also give everybody a PRN instruction. So knowing that if they develop symptomatic hypocalcemia with numbness and tingling in their lips or fingers to treat it with calcium carbonate uh, and to choose chew tablets. Typically, we have them take 2,000 grams at a time. The symptoms get better, but don't go, go completely away they can repeat it 30 minutes later. If after the second dose, it doesn't go away, that's when we want them to call us. Because I would say that if it doesn't respond to two doses of calcium carbonate, I start to question if this is really hypocalcemia. So we wanna sort of intervene before they start taking the entire bottle of Tums. 
Um, but I would say that most patients can clearly understand that we'll take a couple Tums to help relieve symptoms. And, and for most patients, it resolves within a few days. I think the key is to sort of understand when is it going to happen. And calcium levels nadir about 72 hours after surgery. So they're not going to get symptomatic the night of surgery. And they're not going to get symptomatic potentially the second day. It's going to be two to three days down the road where they're most likely to get symptomatic. So it's important to tell patients that so that they can prepare for that appropriately. The other thing that you want to do is sort of predict what's the likelihood of this patient having significant bone hunger or significant hypocalcemia. So if they have really bad bone disease, you know, I, one of the worst patients I had had a T-score of negative 5.4. You could have anticipated that if their bones are that bad, that they are going to be at high risk for bone hunger. Um, especially the patients with secondary tertiary hyperparathyroidism. Again, they're going to be at much higher risk. So those patients, we might be a little bit more aggressive about scheduled calcium. Um, and especially with the secondary hyperparathyroid patients, we also add activated vitamin D or calcitriol. And we actually add it to those patients two weeks before surgery, just so that we can try to preload them as much as we can going in, just knowing that postoperatively they're going to plummet with their calciums to try to prevent and avoid problems long term. Uh, with regard to patients who have um, a renal comorbidities or renal dysfunction, uh, how does that affect your perioperative management and how does that affect your postoperative supplementation? Um, you know, what uh, amount of of FOS and the calcium vitamin D do you need to uh, account for? Can they do gummies, just a Tums, kind of long-term management of those supplements? Yeah, so I would say patients with secondary hyperparathyroidism are at the highest risk for hypocalcemia postoperatively. So those are patients that we actually treat with activated vitamin D for two weeks before surgery. So we give it three times a day scheduled, trying to preload them with, with vitamin D and calcium coming into the operation. So that sort of minimizes how quickly they fall postoperatively. We also continue that postoperatively as far as an aggressive treatment regimen. If patients are on dialysis, we usually keep them in the hospital and do their first inpatient dialysis on a high calcium bath. If they can make it through that first dialysis session with a high calcium bath and maintain a reasonable calcium level, then they can be discharged to home. If they're really struggling and we don't think it's safe, they may stay in the hospital slightly longer. But I would say for most of our patients with this aggressive regimen up front, um, I would say that an IV calcium infusion continuously, I think I've done twice in the last 10 years. So it can happen when people are really refractory, but I would say with a appropriate upfront management, you can avoid that in the vast majority of patients. I think the other things to think about when you're dealing with calcium supplementation is to think about, you know, why are they not absorbing, you know, why is the calcium not where it needs to be. And it's part of this an absorption issue. So I think the patients that we have to think about that are patients who have gastric bypasses, who don't absorb calcium very effectively, and they don't absorb vitamin D, to, you know, vitamin D very effectively. Um, and in those cases, then you have to think about why is it they're not absorbing it. And those patients typically will absorb calcium citrate much more effectively than calcium carbonate. 
um, because calcium carbonate actually requires an acid environment for absorption. So if somebody has had a gastric bypass, they by definition don't have a very acidic environment. The challenge with those patients is that calcium citrate is a big bulky horse pill. And so they, and again, are not gonna get great, great absorption of that. So in an ideal world for somebody who's had a gastric bypass, you wanna get calcium citrate in a liquid or a powder form or something that can be easily absorbed by them. The same thing with the transplant patients is that they often are on uh, PPI. And PPIs are great for acid prophylaxis, but they also decrease acidity in the stomach, which inhibits the absorption of calcium carbonate. So if somebody is on a PPI and it can be stopped, then we would try to do that so that can enhance their calcium absorption. But if they can't get off of it, just know that again, calcium carbonate isn't gonna be nearly as effectively absorbed and you may have to rely on calcium citrate. So I actually, um, you said that you haven't in a long time had patients on a continuous infusion of calcium and um, every patient with secondary, uh, with like renal disease that I've managed so far, I've actually had them on a continuous drip. So I'm wondering about what, what is your uh, strategy then for repleting calcium immediately postoperatively so that you don't have them on a continuous infusion? Yeah, so like I said, we pre-treat them with the calcitriol, usually 0.5 micrograms three times a day, leading for two weeks up to surgery. And then after surgery, we usually continue 0.5 micrograms of calcitriol three times a day, and then usually Tums or calcium carbonate two grams three times a day. Um, and with that regimen, we're in, in a high calcium bath with dialysis. Most patients are able to maintain levels that are satisfactory that they can be done as an outpatient or can go home the next day. Um, mm -hmm. If they bottom out after the first dialysis run, we can increase the calcium. Sometimes we will, you know, put it up to four times a day or every four hours. But then we also look at those other things, like are they on a PPI and can we switch it transiently to um, an H2 blocker instead, which isn't going to alter the calcium absorption? Do we need to add calcium citrate if there's some reason they are malabsorbing the calcium carbonate or it's not getting absorbed as effectively? The other thing that's important to check is what's their magnesium level? If somebody's magnesium deficient, they will not absorb calcium. So making sure that their magnesium replete. So I would say that it's really thinking at it sort of from multiple mechanisms on what you can do to optimize absorption for those patients. And if you can do that proactively, most patients end up doing quite well. Interesting. So uh, moving to uh, in a different direction. So with MEN syndromes, um, is there a difference in how these patients present, how you manage them? And then is there a role for a uh, for any prophylactic uh, parathyroidectomies in these MEN patients? So I would say that for MEN1, you know, it's, it's always multi-gland disease. And those patients often have more than four parathyroid glands. It's not uncommon that they have five or six parathyroid glands. So I think the typical presentation for most patients with MEN1 is sort of in their mid-20s, is sort of when they start to recognize that they have hypercalcemia. So I would say that you want to intervene when they're starting to have some symptoms or consequences of their disease. I would say that with MEN1, it's always a balance of managing the disease for the longest time period before it recurs versus giving them the complication of hypoparathyroidism. And I would say that you are probably never going to definitively cure them for life. 
no matter what surgery you do, they're probably going to recur in the future and they're gonna need further intervention. So I would say you wanna time your interventions to have the greatest impact, to, to debulk the disease, to control it for the longest time period, but to try to avoid the, the dreaded complication of permanent hypoparathyroidism, which I think for many of these patients, permanent hypoparathyroidism is much worse than mild hyperparathyroidism. So I would say that if somebody has symptoms of their disease, has complications related to their disease, I would intervene. And when you operate on somebody with MEN1, you know that they're going to need a foregland exploration. And most of these patients would benefit from a cervical thymectomy at their first operation because frequently they have extra glands and the most common site for an ectopic gland would be within the thymus. They're also at risk for developing thymic carcinoids. And so theoretically, if you can debulk some of the thymus, you may reduce their overall risk of that complication down the road. So for those patients, I would identify all four glands, I would do a cervical thymectomy, and then I would leave a remnant. Um, and I always leave the remnant in the neck, because it's always going to come back, it may grow. And I would say that you always want to ensure that the remnant has a good blood supply and is going to meet their needs. I don't like removing everything from the neck and relying entirely on an auto transplant because auto transplants take most of the time, but probably about 95%. So that means 5% of the time the auto transplant doesn't take, and then you're entertaining the possibility of permanent hypoparathyroidism. The other caveat is, is once you put a, a forearm autotransplant, it doesn't work for about two to three months. And so in that time period, they would be permanently hypoparathyroid while you're waiting for that to kick in. And that can be a miserable existence for patients. I would say that the other disease is MEN2. And I would say MEN2, we manage a little bit different. Parathyroid disease in MEN2 can actually be adenomatous disease. So I would say I would treat parathyroid disease in MEN2 very similar to what I would parathyroid disease in somebody with just sporadic hyperparathyroidism. I would do resections based on imaging and based on intraoperative findings. Um, historically, people would do a total parathyroidectomy in a forearm autotransplant, but I think that that practice has been abandoned because of the risk of permanent hypoparathyroid for patients and the fact that not every parathyroid is abnormal or will definitively become abnormal in the future. So if there are a normal gland in MEN2, we leave it in the neck where it belongs and only resect the glands that are enlarged or have adenomatous disease. With that, we will uh, transition into our segment we call Tips and Tricks. This is where we ask a few questions about uh, something that might be a little bit controversial and challenging. Uh, with you, we'd like to discuss uh, recurrent laryngeal nerve injuries. So in your practice, um, you know, how, how do you manage these? So how do you determine if a patient ha has soreness due to intubation or, or versus a potential recurrent laryngeal nerve injury? Um, uh, when should you be concerned about a more serious injury to the nerve? How do you diagnose? What's your monitoring strat strategy? And, and, and just kind of how, how do you go about working these patients up and managing them? So I think that um, recurrent nerve injuries is, is a risk of both thyroid and parathyroid surgery. And the key to minimizing that risk is to understanding the anatomy of the nerve and always knowing where it's located and how you are dissecting to avoid injury to it. Um, I would say for thyroid surgery, I do use a nerve monitoring system. Um, and I will use it for a parathyroid that's a reoperation because of the scar tissue, but I don't typically in a straightforward parathyroid operation use a nerve monitor. Um, and partly just I don't I feel like it's an added expense and the risk is so low in that population, I don't think it's justified. 
So I would say in a parathyroid operation, I understand the anatomy of the nerve and the location of the parathyroids in relationship to the nerve, which I think is really critical, especially for documenting, you know, which glands you've removed, because I do a lot of reoperative surgery. And it's really helpful if I actually know which gland was removed or which gland they couldn't find. So I think the key is, is that an upper gland is always going to be posterior and lateral to the recurrent nerve. And a lower gland is always going to be anterior and medial to the nerve. So a, a lower gland is a much more superficial gland. So if it's not right by the lower thyroid, it's going to be in the thymus. It's sort of in that anterior plane. Whereas an upper gland is deep to the nerve. And if it descends with gravity, which they often do, is going to be back behind the nerve. It can be low in the neck. It can be down in the chest. But it's always going to be deep and it's going to be back behind the nerve. So I think Part of it is, is looking at the imaging to understand, is this an upper gland I'm looking for? Is it a lower gland? And then based on that, knowing where the nerve is going to be located. So if it's an upper gland, I'm always going to dissect lateral to the, you know, lateral to the parathyroid um, so that I'm not going medial, which is where I know the nerve is going to be. And I do the exact opposite on the lower gland. On a lower gland, I'm going to start my dissection medially, knowing that the nerve is going to be back behind it and more lateral. I think part of it is, is understanding in your dissection where that nerve is going to be. And then once you see the nerve to visually identify it and to make sure that you are staying away from it. I don't like to use any cautery near the nerve. That's the one area, especially in an upper gland where you can get into trouble because the blood vessel goes right across the nerve. And so when you run into bleeding, that nerve potentially is directly behind where that blood vessel is. So where people get into trouble is they start cauterizing things that are bleeding and the nerve is right behind it. So I think the key is, is if you get into bleeding, to not cauterize things until you clarify what the anatomy is and you know where the nerve is. Um, but say that because I don't use a nerve monitor during surgery, I just rely on visual identification of the nerve. If the nerve looks anatomically intact, I know they're going to be fine. Um, then what I would do is after surgery, I would assess their voice. And I would say when you're assessing someone's voice, things that would be um, um, a hint that there might be some vocal cord issues is obviously if they're sounding hoarse or their voice does not project very effectively. They also have a very weak cough. In order to cough, you need forceful, um, uh, at a, you know, bringing together of your vocal cords. So if you can't generate a forceful cough and they have a very wimpy cough, that could be a sign of a vocal cord paralysis. The other thing would be is that they can have signs of aspiration. And most commonly that would be with liquids. And so if I'm suspicious that there might be a vocal cord issue. So I had a case maybe a month ago that was I thought a parathyroid cancer intraoperatively, and I had to skeletonize the nerve from the parathyroid. And I didn't have a nerve monitor because I didn't anticipate finding that. So I was at, thought that patient was at high risk for a vocal cord dysfunction. So the way I do is I take that patient to the recovery room and I tell the nurses that the patient should be NPO or nothing to eat or drink until they're wide awake. And then when they're wide awake, I come and talk to the patient and I assess their voice and I assess their cough. And I try to say, do I think they have any signs of dysfunction? And if I am at all concerned, I would have them do a bedside swallow assessment. So I typically give them a glass of water with a straw. And what I would do is I would have them start with a chin down, tilted to the side of the injury. So if it's the right nerve that was injured, I do a chin tuck tilted to the right. And I have them take a small sip of the water and in that position, see if they can swallow it safely. And if they swallow it safely and it goes down with no issues, 
I have them try with a chin tuck straight down, take a small sip and make sure it goes down okay. If that goes down okay and there's no coughing or signs of aspiration, then I have them take a small sip in a neutral position. And if they pass and they can do that in all those positions, I feel pretty confident that they're probably safe to go home. So then I would allow them to eat and drink. And as long as there's no coughing or any concerns about aspiration, I would send the patient home. If at any point during that intervention, they start to show signs of aspiration, or it seems like maneuvers are not gonna allow them to, to, to drink safely, then those are patients that we would have to bring in probably get a formal vocal cord assessment. And then usually we'll rely on our otolaryngology colleagues to potentially do a vocal cord injection, which can help to medialize the vocal cord, which then usually will allow people to eat and drink safely until there is spontaneous recovery of the nerve, which usually happens within about six weeks. All right, with that, we will uh, transition to our last segment, final five. Uh, these are just some uh, rapid fire, easy questions for our listeners to uh, get to know you a little more personally. So I'll start off with our first one. Um, is there someone outside of medicine who has been influential in your life and career? Yeah, I, you know, my family is always very important to me. So I would say if I think about anyone who's had an influence on my life or career, um, I don't think about famous people or um people that other people would recognize. But I think it's, I look at the people in my immediate family and I think that there, you observe the traits that people have and the things that, you know, that they do and you model yourself after, um, you know, the good and bad. We are who we are because of who we grew up with and who helped to raise us. And so I would say that I think I've taken a little something from everyone, from my parents, from my grandparents, from my spouse, um, which I think has helped to shape me to be the person I am today. Uh, fantastic. Uh, number two, do you have a favorite book um, that has left an impression on you, whether it's for a career or just you enjoyed it or something that you'd recommend uh, to our listeners? Um, and I probably should read more. You know, I love to read, but I re I like to read for relaxation, you know, on vacation to just pick up a book that I really don't have to think about. Um, but I would say that, you know, from from work, I think especially one of my colleagues recommended um, the last lecture um, to me. And I think I think she knew that after my own personal experience and sort of uh, the, the talk I gave at the Academic Surgical Congress last year that I would appreciate it. Um, and it was about a, a professor who was was terminal and was dying of cancer and just sort of thinking about if I had one last lecture to give, what would I say? And what would those lessons be? And I think that, you know, too often we have to have a life event, you know, to sort of get to that point to think about what are the things I really want to teach and what impact could I have? And I think that it's really helpful when you think about that. Maybe we don't have to be faced with a terminal event, but to think about how we could change our lives and what we're doing today to start making that impact and to do the things that we really think are important and that we wish we would have done. Wow. Yes. Thank you. So have you uh, had a favorite trip, vacation, place that you visited? Um, I would say that probably my favorite place has been going to Australia. I went there as an exchange student in high school um, and had an amazing time and lived with a wonderful family. And what's been really cool about it is I kept in contact with them over the last 25 years. And um, 
actually in my trip about five years ago, I was able to bring my family with. And um, I think honestly, as much as we saw all the highlights of the country and did some really amazing things, probably the highlight for my kids was the time we spent with my host family where they got to live with in a house with, with Australians and learn about their culture and their food and play rugby in the backyard with Australian kids and, you know, to sort of just understand what it was to live in that country. So I would say that, that probably was the highlight of that trip and probably my favorite trip. Okay, number four. So let's say you didn't go to medical school. You're not working in the field of medicine at all. Uh, what do you think you'd be doing? I wonder that. Um, I would say I used to always joke about it. I love I'm a very creative person. And so I think that's one of the things that I don't always have enough time to do things. But I love doing craft and art projects. Um, uh, And so I think I honestly would just completely enjoy doing something like that. That was just very creative. Um, I also think now if I think about where I'm at my career is that I I really enjoy teaching. You know, I think that's probably one of the most satisfying aspects of my job. And so I I could easily see myself becoming a teacher. All right. On to our very last question, then. Uh, What would we find in or on your white code today? Um, Well, my fellow gave me a new badge holder and it's a thyroid. Uh, which I thought was very appropriate. Although, unfortunately, my patients look at it and they think it looks like a cat because it's got a smiley face on it. So, um, but it's, it is a thyroid. It's beautiful. And so I have a name tag holder that's a, a thyroid. Um, and then I would say that I'm not always the most organized. So I usually have about 12 pens, you know, because I probably lose eight every clinic. I may occasionally pick up one or steal one from somebody around me, but I think I tend to just donate pens all over the hospital every day. So, Great. Well, Dr. Sipple, we can't thank you enough. Uh, this is a great podcast. We really uh, ask you a lot of questions on many uh, difficult and deep topics, and you're really able to break it down to us in kind of bite-sized pieces. So thank you for your time, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Until next time, dominate the day. 